Stripping Down Science. The Naked Scientists. In this week's show, well, you've heard of SatNav, but now meet BatNav, because scientists have discovered that bats can find their way around using the Earth's magnetic field, and you can also send them off course with the help of a magnet, and we'll be finding out how. Also, there's new information about the deadly Ebola virus in Africa, more on that shortly, and also scientists have licked the problem of where to put an extraordinarily long tongue. We'll be introducing you to the animal that stores its tongue next to its heart. Hi there, I'm Chris Smith. Welcome to this week's Naked Scientists, and also here to help me out is Helen scales. Hi Chris. Yep, also this week we're exploring the science of the Big Bang and the birth of the universe with Cambridge University's Jerry Gilmore. We'll be flying across the surface of Mars with Peter Muller from the University College London and also finding out how the sun can upset communications here on Earth with Julielle Delzana. And if you have any questions on any of those things or any general science questions for us, grab a pen and paper. We'll be giving you details of how to get in touch with us very shortly. And we've also got a very space-themed kitchen science for you this week because we'll be recreating a meteorite impact. What you'll need to do if you want to have a go at doing this at home is a tray, some flour and some cocoa. And you'll also need some Maltesers or something round to chuck at it. Yes, try not to eat those Maltesers till we tell you what to do with them. And if you want to win a signed copy of Chris's new book, Naked Science, which is packed full of fun and funky science stories, then all you have to do is have a go at this week's teaser question. And we want to know from you, how hot is the surface of the sun? The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, scientists this week have done an incredibly interesting piece of work with bats because we knew that pigeons and certain types of fish used to find their way around the Earth by being sensitive to the Earth's magnetic field, and they do it by having bits of magnetic material inside their heads, and their nervous system can read how that magnetic material is responding to the Earth's magnetic field, and then it guides them. Well, now it turns out bats can do the same trick. There's a researcher called Richard Holland who's published a paper in this week's edition of the journal Nature, and what he's been able to do is to track bats and see where they go And then what he did was to capture a series of brown bats in America, put them in a magnetic field for about an hour and a half before... They, the sun set, so in other words, the bats use, their, use the sun to know which direction west is, and then after the sun had set, they let the bats go, and the magnetic field they put them in was 90 degrees to the Earth's own magnetic field, and all of the bats flew off in the wrong direction when they were trying to find their way home, and it took them much longer to get home than bats that had been just left to their own devices. So what this shows is that bats use the sun to work out which direction is east and west, north and south, and then they use the Earth's magnetic field when they can't see the sun to find their way around in the dark. Incredible things going on out there. I wonder what else we'll find that has these incredible senses to magnetic fields. But on a slightly different note and slightly sadder note this week, um, I shall be talking about Ebola, one of the world's most virulent viruses, which might be wiping out the last few remaining mountain gorillas faster than was previously thought. Now, that's according to a study published this week in the journal Science by an international team of scientists led by Magdalena Belmejo from the University of Barcelona who studied the deaths of gorillas in West Africa following outbreaks of Ebola among humans. Now, there have been repeated outbreaks of Ebola that have occurred in West Africa, where it is thought to have killed about a 1,000 people since it was first discovered and recorded in 1976. Now, Ebola causes massive internal bleeding and internal and external bleeding, known as viral hemorrhagic fever. Chris, am I right on that? Yes, it does, and we, we don't know exactly why it does what it does. We just know that it's very, very nasty when you get it, and it seems to dismantle the 
body's immune system very effectively and very fast, and it, it causes your your whole body to go into some kind of hormonal meltdown. So t- literally, blood stops clotting properly. You bleed from all your orifices, and you liquefy yourself. Just sounds like the stuff of science fiction horror films, really. But um, scientists are still working on a vaccine for Ebola, um, but there is currently no known cure for it. Now, back in 2002 and 2003, there were several outbreaks of Ebola among humans in Gabon and the Republic of Congo. And now, while we know that gorillas and chimpanzees were known to die from Ebola around that time, researchers have now confirmed that this was linked to a massive die-off of gorillas in a nature reserve in Congo. And using data from that nature reserve, they've also estimated that a Across the region, an estimated 5,000 gorillas were killed. And that's about a, th- a quarter of all the gorillas that live in the world today. So this really is much more of a problem than we previously thought. And qu- quite possibly the most worrying thing about the study that's come out of his- this um, is that... Um, the discovery that gorillas appear to be transmitting the diseases amongst each other much faster than they do in humans and that they're not just catching the disease from other animals. We already think it's suspected that the gorillas are catching Ebola from eating other animals like fruit bats that have the disease. But by spreading it amongst themselves, really, it's, it's sort of spreading through the population at a much more rapid pace than we thought before. And so together with commercial hunting, which continues for these magnificent animals today, the threat, the very severe threat of Ebola could truly devastate these remaining populations of gorillas and push them towards extinction. It's interesting because up until very recently we just didn't know where Ebola came from. It first appeared about 20 years ago or so and in that time there had been 1,500 outbreaks in humans but no one knew where it was coming from, where it went when it wasn't infecting humans because you'd, you'd get an outbreak, people would die very catastrophically obviously and then it would just disappear and again people would find dead primates like gorillas and chimpanzees and no one knew we knew it was Ebola but no one knew where it was coming from and in the end to get to the bottom of it earlier this year a group of scientists in in the part of Africa that you mentioned in Gabon and Cameroon they started just going to areas where there had been an obvious Ebola outbreak and then they set traps and they caught every animal they could in a two mile or three mile radius around an area where they found these dead animals and they did tests on blood from the animals they caught for things like antibodies against Ebola and they also looked for the Ebola genetic material itself and the only animal they found which which was robustly positive every time was a fruit bat so it looks like bats can harmlessly carry Ebola in the same way as they can carry rabies without seeming to succumb to it and then infect other animals but certainly a nasty disorder and Certainly something we hope that we'll be able to overcome quite soon. But obviously it's more of a threat to primates than it is to humans because it, it seems to be harder for it to get into it to us because presumably we don't get into contact with these fruit bats as often as the gorillas do. Absolutely, and also we think that the link to humans is um, possibly from the gorillas through things like bushmeat and that's possibly how we are you know, sporadically getting infected with the disease. Well, sticking with bats, and that is an interesting th- thing that's come out of America, in fact, South America this week, paper in Nature. It's a researcher called Nathan Machala, and he's found an animal. Uh, it's a, a species of bat which has a tongue which is one and a half times longer than its body. It's actually eight and a half centimetres long. And no one had actually ever seen an animal with a tongue this big before, but what's really interesting is that most animals keep their tongues in their mouths, of course. And since the whole bat isn't even that long, where's it going to keep such a huge tongue? So what the researchers did was to capture some of these bats and examine them very carefully, and it turns up turns out that they've got uh, what's, what's referred to as a glossal tube. Now, this is a special pouch of tissue that goes from the back of their throat down behind their breastbone and in front of their heart. And so when they have this, when they wind in their tongue, having used it for whatever they do with it, then they slide it back down the back of the throat 
into this glossal tube and in front of their heart and between their breastbone. Why do they have such an enormous tongue? Well, it turns out that by catching them and analysing them, analysing pollen on their fur, the researchers tracked down a certain kind of flower that these bats pollinate. It's called a Centropogon nigricans, which lives in the, in the Andes. And these flowers are incredibly long. They're long, trumpet-shaped flowers. And you need an incredibly long tongue to get down the nectar duct to get to the nectar at the bottom. So these bats have become very specialised at just pollinating these particular flowers. And the flowers reward just these bats because no other animal has a long enough tongue to get the reward. Co-evolution is a wonderful thing and has led to many strange associations as we find between insects and plants and, and bats and plants. And another wonderful thing in the natural world, which I'd like to just end on a slightly more upbeat note from my last news piece. Now, has anyone, um, any of you been watching on TV or perhaps over the internet, the BBC's latest natural history documentary, Planet Earth? Chris, have you been watching it? I have. I've been transfixed every week, actually. It I, is I always take my hat off for those kind of programmes because when you actually see the behind-the-scenes look at how long that poor guy had to hide in a hide to capture, capture say, 30 seconds of that it bird doing what it does. It and is, it took him yes. nine weeks of that. Absolutely. And you just have to take your hat off to those people. Yeah, and I, you know, I think, oh, well, I've seen it all before. I'm a biologist. But no, they keep on amazing us. And particularly, I don't know if anyone saw an episode a couple of weeks ago about um, the shallow seas, in which they revealed um, how dozens of swarming sea snakes went hunting with two other species of fish together, an incredible cross-species phenomenon that was only very recently discovered discovered on a remote island in Indonesia and it was certainly news to me and I thought I knew about the seas. Um, so, well, this week we have another team of scientists have published a similar study revealing cooperation between a different set of reef creatures and not only do these guys hunt together but they talk about it as well. The fishes in question are moray eels, which are long, thin, slippery fish that hide in among gaps and crevices in coral reefs, and large predatory fish called groupers, who hang out and catch their prey in open water around the reef. Now, these two have been seen hunting together before, with the eel chasing down prey inside the reef structure and groupers catching the fish that maybe try and escape from them. But for the first time, Redwan Bouchari and his team of scientists from the University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland have seen the groupers communicating with the eel. Now, while they were diving through the beautiful coral reefs of Ras Maharin National Park in Egypt, one of those really tough places to work in, you know, Chris. You well, someone's imagine. got to do it, haven't they? I you know, it's just tough. But they were there and they actually noticed that the groupers were approaching up these moray eels and repeatedly nodding their heads from side to side which is a very odd movement that apparently no-one else had a, a noticed before, and I've certainly never seen it with the times that I've been diving on reefs, and I've seen more eels and groupers lots. Um, but evidently this was an invitation for the eel and grouper to combine their hunting efforts. And while, because um, while the, when the eel noticed what the group, nodding grouper was doing, it immediately left its place in the reef and swam off with its new hunting partner. Now, the team noticed this quite a few times, and they did various experiments to see that this was really what was happening. And they also noticed that when the grouper chased a reef in a fish into the reef, um, it would stand on its head and pinpoint in the right direction for the moray eel to go and get it. So what, what does one get out of its relationship with the other? Because usually when animals of different species or, or, or organisms of, of totally different backgrounds work together, there has to be a perk for both. So what, are the, what are the perks? Well, we can, I think they have, they've shown really that the groupers are benefiting from this because um, it tends to be the groupers that haven't had much success in maybe in that particular day in catching any fish. And they show that the, the hungrier they are and the less success they've had earlier in the day, the more likely they are to go and find a, a, a moray eel and uh, persuade it to go hunting with them. So clearly it kind of gets a bit dead 
desperate, thinks, well, well, I may as well try pounding with the more eel. They haven't actually been able to show that the more eels get any more food because they actually haven't been able to find any more eels that aren't associated with fish catching any fish themselves. They can't be able to quantify quite how successful mores are on their own. But we think there must be some link, that they must be doing better off um, hunting with this other species. Thanks, Helen. It's The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Helen. We're talking this week about the Big Bang, the birth of the universe and space science in general. If you have any questions on that subject, we'll be going over very, very shortly to talk to Jerry Gilmore from Cambridge University, Peter Muller from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory. We'll be hearing from David Block in South Africa about the Andromeda galaxy colliding with another galaxy, so a collision on a gal- literally a galactic level. And also Julio Delzanis here from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory to tell us a little bit about the sun. And uh, on a very sunny theme, that's the nature of our teaser this week. You could win a copy of my fantastic book, which I've got out just in time for Christmas. It's called Naked Science. Lots of fun and funky science facts in there. Uh, And I'm going to give you a signed copy if you can answer this question. Closest to the right answer wins a prize. How hot is the surface of the sun? The Naked Scientists. Supported by the Wellcome Trust. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. And now we're going over to Northamptonshire where Derek and Dave are with Gemma. Some flour, some cocoa and a bag of Maltesers. Now, I don't know if they've eaten them all already, but Derek, what do we need to do? Hello there. Welcome to Southfield School for Girls where we've come this week to do a science experiment which you can do at home. It's very easy. And Dave's here, of course, to explain what it is we're going to be doing. So what, what are we looking at today? We're going to model meteorite strike. A model meteorite strike. So I'll bet you want to try that at home, basically. It sounds very cool. OK. Also, we've got a volunteer from Southfield School for Girls who's come down to actually do the experiment. So could you tell us your name and what year you're in, please? My name's Gemma and I'm in Year 12. OK, brilliant. And very briefly, it's my duty to ask you uh, what you like about science, if anything. So do you, what, what do you like about science? Um, I find it really challenging and exciting at the same time. OK, in any particular area you like? Um, I enjoy biology and I also do physics. All right, OK. Well, we've got some kind of space-related stuff, so hopefully that'll be um, relevant there. OK, then, so if you'd like to do this experiment at home, let me firstly tell you what you need. Basically, firstly, you should get a tray, some kind of, like, cooking tray that you might put in your oven. Um, something smaller than that will do as well, though, like a shallow pan or a bowl even w- would be OK. Uh, you need a fair amount of flour, probably a few hundred grams of it. Uh, it kind of depends on the size of your tray, as you will discover in a moment from Dave. And you need some kind of fine powder which is a different colour to the flour. So we've got cocoa here. Uh, Custard powder would probably do as well. And finally, you need some small round things that are about the size of Maltesers. We actually do have Maltesers here, but uh, you could use other things as well. And um, I'm sure you've got some things in your home for that. So Dave then is going to instruct us what to do and, of course, instruct Gemma what to do as well. So what have we got, Dave? Well, we're going to build a model of what would happen to the Earth if it got hit by a huge meteor. So we're going to lay the flour into the tray. You don't, you don't want to make it too compressed, so maybe sieve it in or give it a good mix-up to get some air in there. Yeah, so get a fork or something and, and just make sure it's quite fluffy. Yeah, OK. And how deep should it be in the pan? At least about an inch, I'd have said. OK, an inch of flour in the pan. OK, and then what do you do? We want to model sort of the surface of the Earth so you can see it's a different colour and so we can see what's been, what's been moved up from underneath. So if we sieve some cocoa powder onto the surface, we'll be able to see what's happening a lot better. So that would be a bit like the cocoa is the topsoil or something like that, I suppose. OK, and we've actually set up the tray with about an inch uh, deep of flour in it and uh, we've also got a sieve and some cocoa, which we would like Gemma to do. So, Dave, would you care to instruct Gemma? Just sieve a thin layer of the cocoa over the top. OK. Um, we've, we've kind of got a good sprinkling there, but should it actually obscure the flour completely, Dave? You, you want to make it very obvious if there's flour on top of it, so get a good dark covering. It's kind of starting to look rather tasty in a strange sort of way. Does it look like any particular food to you? <laughs> Looks like I can make a cake from it. Uh, it does actually look quite good. Maybe like tiramisu or something. OK. 
And finally, what do people have to do with this? Well, you're then going to use some Maltesers as a meteorite, which is going to hit the Earth. And so we want you to try dropping them in and dropping them at different angles and see what effect it has on what happens. OK, so we've got some Maltesers and hopefully you have something like that as well. Gemma, of course, is also going to be doing this experiment later on in the show. What do you think is going to happen, firstly, when we drop one in right from above? What kind of mark might it leave? I reckon it would leave the same sort of hole as the Malteser itself, perhaps a slightly a bit bigger around the outside. OK, yeah, sounds good. And then finally, we, we're also asking people to kind of throw it in at an angle. So when you kind of throw it in diagonally um, with relative to the surface, what might happen there? When it goes at an angle, it will, like, make um, some of the cocoa powder and flour um, sort of go back. OK, so kind of moving it in the direction that it's travelling, yeah. yeah. OK, well, it sounds good. Um, we've got some good predictions there. Basically, that's, that's about it. If you would like to do this at home, of course, then you're very welcome to do so. And if you can get the right result, you can call in or email in and uh, win a prize. So the number is 08459 and you can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And um, if you can do that, we'd be absolutely delighted. And you can join us later in the show to find out what happens and an explanation from Dave as well. So until then, it's goodbye. Thanks, guys. Just in case you missed that, what you need to do is fill a roasting tray or a shallow pan or a tray of some sort with about an inch of flour and sieve cocoa powder over the top of it. Then all you need to do is get some Maltesers and chuck them in and see what happens, throw them at different angles and have a look at the patterns it leaves behind. I've got an email here from Shane in Canterbury. Thank you very much for getting in touch. And he says, presumably he actually, could be a she. I hope it's a he. Um, Our show is awesome. He's a student from the University of Kent and thinks that the show is the only thing that keeps him going while he slogs away on his assignments. And he has a quick question. While I'm working away, what percentage of my brain is being used? Any ideas on that, Chris? I would say all of it in one way or another, although there will be some areas which will be more active than others. Uh, the reason for that is, and it's an, it's an old urban myth, isn't there? Oh, you only use 10% of your brain Well, I was going to say that's what people talk uh, about, isn't and it? It's, it's absolutely rubbish because the brain has such a high metabolic rate. In fact, the, the part of the brain that has the highest metabolic rate and burns off more energy than any other part is, in fact, your retina. But uh, that's part of the brain itself because it's an extension of the central nervous system. But we know if you look at someone who's had a stroke, for example, and damaged a bit of their brain, even though they might be doing a task that doesn't directly seem to involve that part of the brain, the person still doesn't seem to be completely right. They still obviously have some difficulties. So we know that the brain, all of it is used probably all the time, but some bits are recruited and do slightly more some of the time. And the reason we know that is because you can inject substances into people which which are used as a way to map out which bits of the brain are more active than others. So you give people a radioactively labelled glucose molecule, for example, and because the brain loves glucose. Wherever the brain is doing more work, it needs more energy, so it burns more glucose. So in a special scanner, you can see where the radioactivity is being concentrated. That's called a PET scan, and it tells you which bits of the brain are doing what jobs, because you can get people doing repetitive tasks if you ask them to just move their right hand, for example. The part of the brain that's concerned with just moving the right hand will light up. So I guess in order to work harder, we just need to get the right bits of our brain working as hard as we can. Is that right? Sounds well, I suppose it's not, not an unreasonable thing to say. Now, a very quick one here. I've got an email from Bob Tyson, who's actually listening to us in Italy, but I, I guess he's from the States. And he says, on last week's show, you were talking about polonium-210 being difficult to obtain, but in fact, anyone can buy it easily. In the US, there's a product sold for neutralising static on lenses and laboratory equipment. And by using polonium-210, you can irradiate surfaces and allow static charges to disperse. It's called Static Master. I think it's been on the market for a very long time. He says, they cost $30 a piece. I've also tracked down a vendor in the UK. Uh, 
uh, is this common knowledge that you can get hold of this um, so easily? So I sent that to, to Mark Peplow, who was on the programme last week. And Mark Peplow, who's the editor of Chemistry World from the Royal Society of Chemistry, said, um, thanks, Chris. Uh, despite all this, it is still very difficult to obtain. Basically, you'd need to spend millions on buying thousands of these units and then purifying all the polonium before you came up with a decent amount. By decent amount, he means enough to kill someone with, I think. But he says, basically, it's, it'd be the same for using americium, which is the stuff you find in smoke alarms. He says most polonium used in devices is electroplated onto a metal base, and that's a bit like saying that silver-coated forks are a good source of silver. They're not, because you'd have to melt the stuff down and then go through a very complicated uh, separation procedure to get it away from the steel once it's been electro, uh, electroplated. Thank you very much, Mark. So that's Mark Peplow, who's the editor of Chemistry World. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. Don't forget that uh, coming up very shortly we'll be talking about the science of the Big Bang, the birth of the universe, where we're, going, where we're going, where we've come from. Is the universe expanding? And if so, as many people keep asking us, what is it expanding into? Your thoughts, 08459 25 2000, text 07786 201960 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Now over the next few weeks, our own naked scientist Anna Lacey is going to be taking a look at the science of colour and for the first part of the series she's taking a look at the basics of colour and colour in nature. It's an autumn morning in the Fenlands of Cambridgeshire. The grass is green, the sky is blue and the leaves are turning orange, red, yellow and brown. It's the time of year when colour really does seem to be all around us. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to be looking at the science of colour and how it plays a crucial role in everything from nature and fashion to medicine and psychology. But to start at the beginning, what is colour? From the Institute of Astronomy, here's Cambridge University's Barclay Zich. Before we think about colour, we need to actually think about light. So in our solar system, the source of energy is the sun, and that produces energy in the form of electromagnetic radiation. Now, electromagnetic radiation can be split up into wavelengths. And at the shortest wavelengths, we have things like X-rays. Then we have UV light, which is ultraviolet, uh, visible light from blue through to red as we go to longer wavelengths. And then we have what we call the infrared and finally radio waves. Now, these can all be split up separately, but in the visible light, together we view as white light. But if the light coming from the sun is white light, how is it that all the objects we see around us are all these different colours? Well, when white light comes from the sun and hits an object, some of the wavelengths of light are absorbed by that object and others are reflected. And it's the ones which are reflected into our eyes that we see as colour. But with so much light bouncing around, how do our eyes manage to make sense of it all? Here's City University's Professor of Visual Science... Ron Douglas. In the human visual system, the cornea and the lens form an image on the light-sensitive retina. The retina is made up of many millions of nerve cells, and two of these nerve cell types, the rods and the cones, are the photoreceptors. The rods are used in low-light levels, whereas the cones are used at high-light levels during the day, so they're the photoreceptors that underlie colour vision. Within them, they have pigments, called visual pigments, which absorb certain areas of light. So we have three cones, one that absorbs at short wavelengths, which we would perceive as blue, another class of cone which absorbs basically green, and a final one which absorbs in the yellow part of the spectrum, although we usually call it our red cone. But why can we only detect such a small part of the electromagnetic spectrum? 
Why isn't there a colour UV, for instance? And what's stopping us from copying Superman and evolving X-ray vision? We can't see ultraviolet because our lens absorbs ultraviolet. And I think the reason is that we actually live to be quite old. And ultraviolet is damaging, and this damaging effect is cumulative over time. So in humans, because we live to be 70 or 80, um, we would basically go blind if we were sensitive to ultraviolet light. However, nothing is sensitive below the ultraviolet, that is, for example, X-rays, because biological tissues do not transmit such short wavelengths. With X-ray specs out of the question, let's come back down to Earth and the green grass of Cambridgeshire. From what we've heard, we can say that the grass is green because it reflects wavelengths in the green part of the spectrum. But what does the grass do with the colours that aren't reflected? Here's Dr Alison Smith from the Department of Plant Sciences at Cambridge University. It absorbs and then uses the energy of that light to do photosynthesis, that is, to take the light energy and turn it into sugars. The molecules that do the absorbing are chlorophyll molecules, and there are electrons in the molecule of chlorophyll which get excited, and those electrons are dancing around and they transfer eventually from chlorophyll to another compound, and that compound then can be transferred through the metabolic reactions in the plant, and it allows carbon dioxide to be fixed and turned into sugars. Each year, plants make an estimated 10 billion tonnes of chlorophyll, but production clearly drops off during the red and orange autumn months. So why do leaves change colour? In autumn, what happens is the plant wants to get uh, its resources that are in the leaves and then store them over the winter. But chlorophyll, like, it can't do it with chlorophyll and just leave it there because it's a dangerous molecule because it absorbs light. It can, can have uh, phototoxic effects. And so it breaks down the chlorophyll and turns it into a colourless molecule and stores that. And then what you see is the other pigments which are present in the plant, which are red or yellow or whatever. So while the natural world glitters in green, red and brown, our attention now turns to the dazzling hues of the man-made environment. Next week, I'll be delving into the dye industry to find out about the man who made purple possible and how hair dye helps millions of people to hide those dreaded greys. Thank you very much, Anna Lacey from The Naked Scientist, finding out about the science of colour. If you have any questions for us, very shortly we're going to be blasting off from planet Earth in search of the origins of the universe. 08459 25 2000. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or you can text in on 07786 20 1960 if you've got any questions. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Time now to head stateside across the Atlantic and to join Bob and Chelsea for this week's Science Update. This week for the Naked Scientists, Science Update goes to outer space. And it sounds just like this. I'll be telling you about the telescope that's going to take over for the Hubble Space Telescope. But first, Chelsea tells us what scientists are learning about what stars and planets are made of. Scientists have found a new ingredient in the increasingly strange and complex interstellar soup. It's a negatively charged molecule, meaning it's managed to hold on to an extra electron despite being assaulted by radiation that would tend to knock it off. Astrophysicist Patrick Thaddeus of the Harvard-Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory says it's the first of its kind found in the large molecular clouds that percolate in space. These molecular clouds are of very, very deep importance because 
essentially all star formation occurs in molecular clouds because they're dense and they tend to be rather cool. And so these are the factories out of which stars are being made continuously in a galaxy like ours and presumably over the whole face of the universe. They've already found the molecule in two clouds and expect to find it and possibly other negatively charged molecules elsewhere. Learning about this interstellar mix helps scientists know more about the ingredients that went into cooking up our sun, the Earth, and ultimately us. Thanks, Chelsea. Well, NASA recently announced that it will service the Hubble Space Telescope one more time, meaning we'll have seven more years of its stunning images. But what comes after that? All eyes are on the James Webb Space Telescope, which will have a mirror seven times larger than Hubble's. It's designed to look at the youngest galaxies in the universe and see how planets form. Pam Sullivan, a manager for the telescope, says NASA engineers are already hard at work. 2006 is actually the big year for us in that we're trying to demonstrate all of our technologies. We've got 10 what we call enabling technologies, things that have to work, things that we have to invent, basically, for the James Webb Space Telescope to work. We're on track to finish up that this year. If things go according to plan, the JWST will launch in 2013, just in time to take over from Hubble. Thanks, Bob. We'll be back next week when we'll grant people's Christmas wishes by answering some of their most pressing science questions. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. And there's more from Bob and Chelsea on their website at scienceupdate.com. Is Dr. Chris and Dr. Helen, and we're joined this evening by Jerry Gilmore, who is the Deputy Director of the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge University. Hi, Jerry. Thank you, thank you for coming in. Hi, Chris. It's Good great to, to have here. you here. Uh, now, we were just chatting there because I have to say hello to everyone who's listening on Radio Europe, REMFM. Uh, one of the places where that means we're being broadcast is the Canary Islands, and it's a place where you do a lot of your observations because you have telescopes there, I gather. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, the UK, actually, plus Spain and various other countries have really big observatories on top of the Canary Islands. Nice, uh, nice dry, sunny places. Now, Jerry, your, your interest is obviously in space science, but can we wind the clock right back about 14 billion years or so to the time when the universe was just beginning? Can you just sort of orientate us? What was the Big Bang? Because we'll talk about it, but what actually was it? Ah, okay. Uh, well, in a very real sense, it was the beginning. Uh, the, the, it's impossible to say what there was before because there was no nothing before the beginning. Uh, our current understanding of the concepts is that one has just nothing. And nothing is a bit like the number zero. You can think of the number zero being at the bottom of all the numbers and they, you count one, two, three off for as far as you go. But it's also at the top of all the negative numbers, minus one, minus two, minus three, and so on. And so having nothing, having zero, isn't actually the same as not having anything at all. And when you have just vacuum, just energy, you actually have this real tense balance between all the positives and all the negatives. And occasionally, when you have that much tension pulling against itself, you get a little unbalance somewhere or other. And one of those little imbalances that just happen by chance, uh, when it gets enough unbalanced, springs into something. And that something becomes the universe. And that something creates space and it creates time. And so a, a universe, space and time, just flash into existence out of literally nothing. Did people at one time say that that people studying space was a bit anti-religion because they tried to argue that this was trying to decry the efforts of God and, and creation. I'm just saying that because Gillian in Wilburton said, is there any way to relate the Big Bang to God and religion? Could we say that this is perhaps the moment of creation? Because we can literally put a time on when the Big Bang happened, can't we? 
Yes, at uh, a time we know quite accurately, actually, and we're uh, able to measure it more and more accurately as the experiments get better. So, yes, we know precisely, almost precisely, when uh, when the universe first came into existence. It, you need to be a little careful to call that creation. In a strict, the word creation is used slightly differently in physics than it is in, in some other subjects. And whether or not it's uh, related to a, uh, an, or a a cause, what caused that, is, of course, one of the big questions of physics. And that's the fundamental distinction between a physics explanation for the universe and a religious explanation for the universe. Now, when you say you know exactly when it happened, how do we know exactly when the Big Bang happened? How, how can we put a, a time point on that? Well, what we see today is the universe expanding. Uh, it's getting bigger and bigger all the time. And so we can just measure that speed of expansion directly. In fact, we can measure it directly all the way back to the the time when the universe was only about 270,000 years old. We have quite accurate measurements all the way back to then. And it's very easy then to extrapolate the last little bit, the last quarter of a a million years. Um, And so from that, we can actually measure directly. Now, that's because there's a special thing about astronomy. It's totally unlike biology or any other subject, uh, is that when we look out in the universe, because time is because light is travelling at a finite speed, what we're actually doing is looking back in time. So when you look at the sun, you see the sun as it was seven or eight minutes ago. I'm not sure of the number, but whatever the number is. Uh, When you look out to stars that are light years away, we use the term light years. We see them as they were years ago. When we look back to the, uh, the earliest galaxies, we see them as they were 10, 12 billion years ago. So we're actually seeing them. The light left them. It's like a video picture coming through space towards us that we just see today. And so... In a real sense, we don't know what those things are like now in inverted commas, but we do know precisely what they were like 12 or 13 billion years ago. So it's very easy for us to measure the past. It's just incredibly difficult to tell you about now. So how do you know the universe is expanding? What are you watching to, to get those clues? Uh, OK, it's uh, basically all you, all you need to do is measure a distance, and distance is hard, of course, but there are some objects whose brightness is known, and so we call them standard candles. They're particular types of star or exploding star or types of galaxies or whatever, There's lots of technical stuff. It doesn't matter much. Uh, and when you see something that you know how bright it really is and you measure how bright it seems to be to you, you can very easily work out how far away it is. It's just the old inverse square law. And so that's most of what cosmology is about. You measure things that you know how bright they really are, you measure how bright they seem to us, and you work out how far away they are. And you measure, and it's very easy, we measure their Doppler shift. We measure how fast they're moving away from us. And so we see, just experimentally, that as we look further and further away, things are moving faster and faster, and that just is a definition of an expansion. So what's actually driving the expansion? Obviously there was a big explosion for the Big Bang, but something must be continuing 14 billion years later or so to be pushing these things away. What's doing that? Well, that's a non-trivial question, actually. But, yeah, to start with, the universe just had enough energy from the bang. Bang was a, a... term uh, invented by Fred Hoyle here in Cambridge and is a rather derogatory term but turns out to be more accurate than he realised uh, it really was an explosion and the energy of the explosion just threw the space time out at, at a very high speed, it slowly slowed down under its own weight its own weight was pulling it back and it in principle would keep slowing down and slowing down and slowing down. So, so is it growing at the speed of light or um, faster? 
it, that's, a, that's another slightly non-trivial question. <laughs> um, yes is the answer, is the outer parts of the universe are always growing at the speed of light. But you, you need to be careful there because there's two sorts of universe. One is the universe that we can see, the observable universe, the stuff that we can know about, and that is definitely growing at the speed of light. But there's also whatever else might be out there that's beyond our horizons, and so one needs to be a little careful. People tend to confuse those two concepts, as do most of my colleagues, I must say, and myself quite frequently. Uh, but the universe is expanding, and it's expanding uh, at, at, at a, the outer limits of it. The bits that we can observe are expanding at the speed of light, but the local space-time part is expanding much slower than that, very much slower than that. Um, What's actually pushing it? What's making it do well, that? Well, okay, so that the, what it should be doing is just slowing down slowly. It's just an inertia. It's just whatever was left over from the bang was expanding. She said it. it's speeding up. But, yes, that's right. It isn't, uh, it isn't doing that. And it became apparent just about five years ago, really. There was a hint a decade ago, but it became clear only about five years ago. And there was a very accurate determination of this just about three months ago uh, that the universe is actually speeding up. And we don't know what's, uh, what the physical cause of this is. What we know is the process. There is something that is sometimes called dark energy. It's a particularly unhelpful label. It's no more than a known unknown in the common sense of the term. Uh, but there is some intrinsic property of space-time which acts like a pressure and is pushing apart space-time itself. So it's not a force in the simple sense of the word. It's like a, a pressure. I, I had heard though that if you just take that side of the equation the equation would be rather unbalanced the universe should be blowing itself to pieces so something is acting to kind of negate that effect again something we can't measure dark matter so what's that all about well dark matter only partially negates that effect it based on the current numbers the universe is actually blowing itself apart and uh, it will continue to blow itself apart until eventually even something like the earth or, or us gets ripped apart by the expansion of the universe and you end up with, with an entire universe containing nothing but one particle in it and so the universe will become a very lonely place so it, it really is blowing itself apart in a rather ridiculous way but you're right there's there's an awful lot of mass slowing it down and pulling against it and in fact about 10 times more mass than you would guess from just looking at all the stars and galaxies and, and biologists in the world uh, and that matter we know is matter but it's we can't it doesn't shine and so we call it dark matter is there any way to, to find it? Is there any way to easily detect it? Presumably not, or we would have found it by now. Oh, no, it's very easy to detect, actually. Uh, the, the fundamental property of matter, matter has only one fundamental property, uh, and that is that it, it knows about gravity. So matter both generates and responds to gravity, and that's the definition of matter. There are, in fact, four other, or three other forces in nature which the sort of matter that we're made of respond to as well. But uh, dark matter only responds to well, no, probably none of those three, but certainly it doesn't respond to the electromagnetic force, which is what makes things shine, and therefore we call it dark. But it has matter, and we can weigh it. In fact, it's very easy to find. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the naked scientists. It's been an exciting week for Mars this week. Let's join Peter Muller, who's from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory at University College London. Hi, Peter. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Uh, part of your work is to try to get a sort of three-dimensional map of the surface of Mars, and I have to say, having seen it, I'm gobsmacked. Well, uh, it has been a revolution. Over the last few years, we've received the stereo data from the European Space Agency's stereo camera, and um, with that and new computer technology, we've been able to find out what the true 3D shape of Mars is. And what we've learned from this is that water is playing an important part. And what we heard over the last week 
uh, was, uh, in fact, that over the last 10 years, it appears that water has acted on the surface. So all of that has only been possible because uh, of the increased resolution that we've had from the stereo camera, uh, and our understanding of how water flows on other surfaces. Peter, can you just explain to us a bit about what the stereo camera is and how it works? Well, we have nine different views that look at different angles. So there's a short time interval between each of those different views. Where, where are they looking from, though? Uh, they're looking from uh, orbit, from a spacecraft uh, that swoops down to about 250 kilometres above the surface. And then when it gets down to the lowest point... It starts sweeping out a swath over the surface, looking first at the forward, then looking underneath, and then looking backwards. And by finding common points between those three in just the same way that we find common points in our brains between uh, objects that we see in our eyes, uh, we get perception of depth. So why are you doing this? I mean, it sounds nice, and having seen the pictures, it was staggering. It was literally like being in an aeroplane flying over the surface of Mars. But what, what sorts of benefits will there be for us in having this sort of information? Well, uh, currently the most important uh, scientific investigations of Mars are concerned with looking at conditions uh, which might have had in the past or might even possibly be at the present time where there's life. Now, in order for life as we understand it uh, to exist on another planetary surface, we have to have water. Now, in the case of Mars, we don't see any standing bodies of water. We see ice sheets. But we do see examples of how water has carved out the landscape. Now, just looking at pictures and working out that, yes, this looks like a feature such as a river feature on the Earth is one thing. But in order to prove that it's actually water, and also to be able to calculate how much water, we need to be able to work out what the true 3D shape is. That's really the significance of this work, that now for the first time we can actually determine whether or not water has flowed on the surface and how much water was required and when this water flowed. So apart from obviously studying the, the hydrodynamics of Mars, are there any other tangible benefits, sort of finding sites to put, I don't know, bases of the future? President Bush wants to go to Mars, doesn't he? Yes, I mean, in 20 to 30 years' time, it's likely that uh, we will have uh, humans, although the passage to Mars is still a bit challenging in terms of the radiation environment from the sun. But in terms of finding likely spots where we can put uh, robotic landers and, of course, in future humans, um, is very dependent upon knowing what the 3D shape of the surface is, not just because we don't want to land one of these spacecraft in some rock-strewn, boulder-strewn uh, landscape uh, that uh, the spacecraft is likely to uh, break up and collapse. But also, from the point of view, we need to know how the surface interacts with the atmosphere. Uh, and in the case of Mars, uh, that can happen for up to 20 kilometers above the surface. And it makes a huge difference as to where the balloons and the parachutes will actually land our spacecraft. I presume it will also give us a good clue as to where a hot spots would be f for life. If we were going to go looking, it would give us an idea as to where we should focus our attention, shouldn't it? Yes. So far, uh, not just the 3D, but other instruments on the European's uh, Mars Express spacecraft and now on the American Mars Reconnaissance are pointing to those most likely locations. And it's a source of great debate, both transatlantic and within Europe and within the U.S., as to where we should go, what is the most likely place. 
Now, each of us has our own favorite place on Mars. My favorite place on Mars is uh, a place that we believe there was a large frozen sea of pack ice uh, that we saw about 18 months ago, and that was reported uh, in the literature. We want to go there because we know that uh, water flowed in that area in the last few million years, which is very, very young. But, of course, we've seen the observations over the last week of gullies where there appears to have been water in the last 10 years, and those may also be places uh, that, of course, uh, we want to target future space missions. Thank you very much, Peter. It's Peter Muller, who's from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory at UCL there, responsible for making a three-dimensional map of the surface of Mars. Yeah, I don't know what my favourite part of Mars is, but I'm going to have a think about it now. Olympus Mons, that massive mountain, which is perhaps 20 times higher than Everest or whatever well, it is. Sounds Huge, good to me. It? Yeah, why not? Um, uh, we've got correct and some incorrect answers flooding in for our teaser, teaser question, so please keep calling. Um, our question is, how hot is the surface of the sun? Quite excitingly, we've got an email here with the correct answer by, from Bill in British Columbia in Canada so we will put you on the pile of people who got it right lots of other people are really very close so we may well have to pull a name out of the hat including Amanda in Kettering Trish in Kings Lynn and strangely Corridor in Leyston got the wrong answer but equally as hot as Pat in Chelmsford <laughs> so sorry not quite <laughs> Stripping down science Okay let's do it The Naked Scientists now, we're talking about space science this evening, and Julio Dolzana's here, also from the Mullard Space Science Laboratory. Hi, Julio. Thank you for coming. Hi, Chris. Nice to now, meet you. Now, you're not interested so much in Mars as the sun. What are yes. you doing with the sun? Well, I'm interested in the solar atmosphere. It's funny enough, I'm Italian, but I left Italy to study the sun here, so I've been looking at the sun almost every day. Not the newspaper. In the last ten, in the la- no, not the newspaper. <laughs> On the solar atmosphere in the last 10 years since I've been here in this country, thanks to the SOHO especially, you can see all the atmosphere. So- SOHO being this SOHO mission? SOHO being the, the, the satellite that was launched in '95 that has shown us every day images of the solar atmosphere. What are you and hoping to learn by doing that? studying me, mainly, yeah. So, so using SOHO, what's the, the sort of mission... Aim. What are you trying to find out? Well, basically, we're trying to find out everything, the basics about the solar atmosphere. We still don't know the basics in terms of why it's so hot, the atmosphere. It's much hotter than, than, than the solar surface. We still don't know. We still don't know what are the processes that accelerate, basically, all these stream of particles that are coming out all the time from the sun and they reach the Earth. And this is the solar so- wind? This is the solar wind, yeah. Because it's, what, a million mile an hour maelstrom of ionised material, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's ionised gas streaming across and passing through the Earth and throughout the whole solar system and creating all these wonderful displays of the auroras on the, on the Earth, but also on all the planets. So the northern lights and, and stuff is, is down to that? That's right, yes, yeah, so the fast solar wind, but uh, mostly... But then, especially thanks to flares, when, when these big events are happening, then these, these big displays are, are happening. And I've been, I've been also enjoying, basically, these, these, this kind of link, in the sense that, for example, when I was here, I was able to predict this huge explosion on, of the sun one day, and then it happened, and then I was able to basically follow these uh, huge, huge uh, energy release from, from the SOHO satellite, and then I was able to predict, uh, we, we knew there were going to be huge auroras, so then uh, I was very excited after one day and a half. Uh, Why do you actually get <clears throat> the aurora borealis, the northern lights? What's actually happening to make them? Well, what happens is that there is this uh, very, uh, all this huge stream of uh, particles that are coming together with uh, these corona mass ejections. It's just, just huge masses of, uh, of gas, about... Um, 10,000 million tons or something like that, a huge amount of, of, um, of ionized gas. 
that is passed streaming towards the Earth, and then all these energetic particles, they get trapped into uh, the magnetospheres, and then they follow basically uh, the magnetic fields that we have on, on, on the Earth. And so they, they stream down, and then uh, basically they, they, they basically decelerate, they interact with the, with the upper atmosphere, and they ionize our atmospheres, they ionize nitrogen and oxygen atoms, and they show these, these colors and very Why, wonderful things in the just, northern south. I was yes. wondering, well, yeah. I've never seen the northern lights, and I would love to yeah. see that, but you have to go, I believe, to either the north or south pole to see them, and why is, mm. why is it that the only place that we see them? You can see them in well, Scotland, can't you? Okay, well, but northern and southern parts no, of the... No, it's because normally, when the sun is quite normally active, that's where they are. You have these ovals, which are very close to the, to the north and south poles. And they're is that all just the because time. that's where the magnetic field is dipping into the yes, pole, so it's that's drawing right. everything that's down? that's right. But when you have a flare, even not a big flare, all that gets disrupted, so you can get them to much lower latitudes. You can see them even almost towards the equator in some exceptional circumstances. And I saw them here in Cambridge just because uh, there was this flare that was direct, they had this coronal mass ejection directed towards us. And that was, that was very nice. And so they're easy to see, actually, if you know when to see and you have the right kind of combination. I suppose one benefit of, of studying the behaviour of the sun is that it will enable you to know when communications on Earth might be likely to be affected. Is that because satellites that we're using for our communications are also being bombarded by this radiation and this can cause problems? Yes, indeed. Yeah, that can cause... That has caused problems. Uh, mostly, well, to start with, you have these energetic particles that come after just a few hours. You have first the light that comes comes in eight minutes and you have all these x-rays and all these very dangerous stuff especially for for humans in space is is they can get basically fried basically they can, they can get grilled but then you have after a few hours these very energetic particles they swamp basically all the detectors and everything and they can cause damage plus also you have after one day or something you have uh, these uh, these bubbles of gas pass, passing at high speeds and they've been known to cause troubles to satellites. They've even shut down satellites. The last one was in '97. That, uh, but um, in the past, uh, there've been a lot of cases uh, of of this. They can shut down satellites. It can cause trouble. And of course, other problems is that all these X-rays they basically they form our ionosphere, basically, and they regulate the whole of the upper atmosphere. So when they happen, basically, they can affect. All the transmissions, for example, the radio frequencies, and they can change a lot of things. Thank you very much, Julia. That's Julia Delzana, who's in the Mullard Space Science Laboratory. They're looking at the sun and its behaviour and how it can influence uh, our planet here on Earth and the communication systems by influencing satellites and the systems of, of satellites out in space around the planet. <laughs> And now here's a discovery that's truly smashing, because in October, scientists reported having spotted something extremely unusual in our cosmic neighbourhood. Using the Spitzer Space Telescope, David Block and his team spotted a collision between the nearby Andromeda galaxy and a smaller companion galaxy. When the two ran into each other, they created shockwave rings, a bit like the ripples you see when you drop a pebble into the surface of a pond. That's what the team have seen, but what's really exciting is that, relatively speaking, it's happened only recently. What we are actually reporting in nature is something quite extraordinary, a head-on collision of one galaxy plunging through the actual disk of the Andromeda spiral. This is quite extraordinary. Normally, these sorts of collisions are reserved for galaxies in our very distant universe. But uh, to find a head-on collision 
right on our doorstep is truly riveting. Is this something that's happened fairly recently then in sort of cosmological time? I think that this is what makes the, uh, the research additionally so incredibly exciting is that, yes, dinosaurs roamed on Earth when this head-on collision actually took place. We estimate that the collision took place only 200 million years ago, which in cosmological context is extraordinarily short. How did you actually spot it, though, David? The rings were spotted using the Spitzer Space Telescope. And what is very interesting is Andromeda has a very large, bright, pregnant bulge of stars. And these stars absolutely would masquerade any rings in the optical wavelength regime. But of course we must remember using the Spitzer Space Telescope we start receiving photons of light in the near and in the mid-infrared regime. And what these Spitzer images revealed were two rings. An outer ring uh, of diameter approximately 65,000 light years and an inner ring. Now, it's this inner ring, which is totally new, which has never been really reported before. The inner ring has a dimension of around 5,000 by 3,000 light years. And this set of two rings are indeed the smoking gun evidence for a head-on collision. Perhaps if I could explain by means of an analogy, if you take a stone and you throw it into a pond of water, it creates a ripple effect. And what we've actually gone and discovered, my team has actually found all these rings, these sets of rings, which point to a very violent past in our closest spiral galaxy. How do you know it only happened 210 million years ago? What has been very interesting is that we've been very privileged to work at the uh, Observatoire de Paris in France, and using some of France's most sophisticated computers, they've actually been able to simulate the collision. And what the simulations beautifully prove is that if you set everything up correctly in order to get the companion galaxy to where it is today, you have to backtrack by only 200 million years for this violent head-on collision to have taken place. And so it's using very sophisticated computer codes that doctors Bornard and Coombs have actually been able to show that this amazing collision has taken place very, very recently. David Block from the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. He's found evidence for a headlong collision between our neighbour, the Andromeda Galaxy, and a companion galaxy that formed alongside it. And you can find more fantastic stories and interviews like that on the Nature Podcast, which is available from nature.com forward slash podcast. Well, let's now head back to Derek and Dave and Gemma in the kitchen and find out what happened when we made our own do-it-yourself meteorites. Derek. Hello there and welcome back to Southfield School for Girls where we are ready to simulate a meteor impact on the Earth, no less. We've actually got um, a tray full of flour uh, about an inch deep and then we've covered it with a layer of cocoa, basically, so it's a nicely different coloured powder on top. And um, Gemma from the school is here ready to do it and also Dave to instruct her. So Dave, what, what do we do first? First of all, just take a Malteser, lift it up maybe a couple of feet above the thing and drop it and see what happens. Ooh, <laughs> that was quite interesting. Um, the Maltese has gone about 
two centimetres down into the flour and all the white flowers then come on top of the cocoa powder, spread out about five centimetres in range, like diameter. OK, so what, what, have we, what have we got there, essentially? What have we made in a very miniature way? Um, we've made a mini crater. We have indeed. OK, so there we go, Dave. We've, we've managed to create a crater. Uh, what's actually happening here? Why is it that we've seen that the, the white flower from below is actually what's on the kind of edge of the crater, the inner edge, and then it, it goes brown? Or when you drop the Maltese, it's slowly gaining kinetic energy as it's falling down towards the Earth, as a meteorite would do. And when it actually hits, all that energy's got to go somewhere. In a real meteorite, some of that will go into, like, sound and heat and melting things. But some of it just goes into throwing stuff around. So you can see the stuff dug up from quite deep, spread all around the outside. OK, and, and why is it then that the, the white powder, the, the, as it were, the Earth from underneath the, the, the surface, has actually ended up at the edge of the crater? Well, the brown stuff from the surface will get thrown around as well. But near the edge, it's going to have just thrown up so much deep stuff that it goes white around the edge. And it will also tend to lift up the edge of the crater, which is why the rims of craters tend to be lifted up. OK, now then, we've got another condition which we can try, which is? If you'd like to try throwing one at about the same speed but at an angle and see what happens. OK, here she goes. It's kind of like throwing darts but kind of diagonally downwards. OK, here we go. All right, and what happened there? OK, so now all the flour has actually spread out in the like, opposite direction. None of it, it hasn't gone around, it's just gone forward. Um, it's all white and it's spread out a lot further than the one that I just dropped vertically. So, yes, as Gemma says, we've got um, not, not a symmetrical crater, I suppose. It's actually sprayed out quite a lot of the flour ahead of... Um, well, it's gone in the same direction that the Maltese was thrown in. So, yeah, Dave, what, what, why does that happen, firstly? Um, because the Maltese has got a lot of momentum in one direction, it will tend to transfer that momentum for stuff which it's throwing up and tend to blow it forwards, basically. OK, so we've been trying to simulate what happens when a meteor hits the Earth. So is this actually, you know, quite similar, I suppose? I mean, we're dealing on a much different scale here, but how is it similar? It's a similar process. Um, a meteor will hit the ground, it will vaporise things, it will blow lumps of it about. Most of it will be within a kilometre or two, but some of it can be spread thousands of miles up into the stratosphere. OK, so yeah, so meteors hitting the Earth, obviously a much larger scale and much larger energy involved. Now then, we've also tried throwing one in at an angle, and I suppose most meteors must come and meet the Earth at an angle because we can hardly expect them to actually hit the Earth dead on. Um, and yet, do, I mean, do we all, always see craters like the one we saw when Gemma threw it at an angle? You very occasionally get um, craters which aren't symmetrical, but that's normally when they're coming in at a very, very small angle. Normally they're circular because the size of the meteorite compared to the size of the crater is tiny because these things are coming in at maybe Mach 25, so 20,000 miles an hour. And so they've got an immense amount of energy. So basically once they've hit the ground, it's, it's like a nuclear bomb going off. Um, there's a famous meteor crater in Arizona which, where a 50-metre-across asteroid hit the middle of Arizona and it's blown a crater about 1.2 kilometres across. It's about 2.5 million tonnes of TNT going off all at once. OK, so in order for Gemma to actually simulate what happened in the Arizona crater, then we would need uh, her to throw it at, what, 20,000 miles an hour or something? If you throw it incredibly hard, you might be able to get a more symmetrical crater, but you'd also get a lot of a mess. Uh, yes, absolutely. So how do you, fan you know, fancy going up for 25 times the speed of sound and see what you can do? I think that's quite impossible. OK, fair enough. Yeah, we agree. But um, it's still been an excellent effort and we do have some not too much mess and some very pretty craters here. So we hope you have got some of those at home too. Uh, how do you like the experiment anyway, Gemma? I uh, found it very good, quite tasty with the cocoa powder and flour. <laughs> well, OK, there you go. Um, so we might be able to cook some of this now, so there you go. Anyway, thank you very much to Gemma from Southfield School for Girls and also to Dave, and we'll be back next week with some more science, which you can do at home, hopefully. So until then, it's goodbye. 
Thank you very much, Derek. And in fact, coming up this week, uh, you're going to need an ice cube and some thread and some salt and uh, possibly a bit of gin and tonic as well, or something like uh, any old alcohol will do some aftershave or work too if you need that. So that's next week's Kitchen Science. But anyway, Helen, how's it going on the quiz front? We have had a bumper crop of correct answers, especially as we gave you about a 1,000 degree uh, <laughs> um, plus or minus on your correct answer. Um, but we had we had Jerry in the studio randomly pull a name out of the hat, and it just so happened that it was Corridor who rang us back with the right answer. Thank you so much for that. Corridor and Layston, you've got the right answer. And I'll hand it over to Julia to tell us what we should be looking at for the temperature of the sun. So how hot is the surface of the sun, Julia? It's approximately 5,700 degrees, plus or minus, depending on what you're looking at. And how do we know that? Well, we know that by measuring basically the intensity, the radiation of the sun uh, at different wavelengths, and we can see that it follows the rules of the theoretical rules of the black body. And from that, we know from the quantum mechanics that basically we can we can measure these 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 numbers, and we can see that on average, that's what we get. And the peak em- the peak emissivity is of course in the yellow, but that that's, that's visible light. But that's so that's why the sun it. looks yellow. Yes. Thanks ever so much to everyone who called in. Um, but keep on listening. And next week, perhaps you'll be the right one out of the hat. Andy is on the A120. Hi, Andy. Hi, Mike. Got a couple of minutes uh, left of the programme. You want to talk to Jerry? What's your question? Yes, the Big Bang Theory. What went bang? Very <laughs> simple. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good question, yeah. Uh, well, the answer, strangely enough, is nothing. Um, and that's the the key, this point I mentioned briefly before about zero. If if you think of, of nothing, nothing is actually a balance between a big positive and a big negative. And if occasionally that little balance goes wrong, you go from nothing to something very quickly indeed, and you get an awful lot of something in a very small place. And so in a very real sense of the word, the uh, Big Bang sprang out of nothing. Andy, I hope that that clears that one up for you. Confuse me even further, but never mind. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're See you later, Andy. Goodbye. Lorraine rang in from Patworth to say she very much enjoyed winning a copy of Naked Science. That was my book, and that's what we're going to send to, to Corridor for, for taking part in our competition this evening. Naked Science, um, and she suggests that a quirky name for the show which she loves would be Boffins in the Buff, she says. Love the show, it's wonderful, so thank you very much for that. Thank you enormously to all our guests this evening. Thank you, Julio Delzana, and also to Peter Muller, who joined us on the telephone, and Jerry Gilmore from Cambridge University for doing a great job and telling us all about the science of how we're exploring space and various aspects floating around in space. Thank you very much for coming in. It's been a pleasure to have you. Now, next week is our last programme of 2006, and it's going to be a festive, fun-packed Q&A programme. So all your science questions on anything, you just send them in, and we will try and answer them for you. We'll also have Colin Humphreys on the programme. He's from Cambridge University, and he's managed to link the Star of Bethlehem to a real astronomical event, although Jesus might have to change his birthday by the odd five years or so. Thanks for having us. See you next week. (laughs) 